morning, good morning. Well, Justin is, uh, has the day off, and um, so I'm here with you this morning. I hope that's okay. I'm really excited to continue this conversation that we've been going through the life of David, the life of David. This is isn't it an interesting character in our Bibles. Over 40 chapters are devoted to the life of David. Over 40 chapters. There's only two other characters in your Bibles that get more airtime and content than David, and that's Moses and Jesus. David is talked about third most in your entire and all your Bibles, and that's significant because he's a significant character in your Bible, and there's so much that we can learn from his life and the events of his life that we can learn from and, and, and grow from, um, but he's an important figure, and his story is told throughout Samuel, First and Second Samuel, and uh, in, in some other places as well. Um, but what's interesting is that uh, in your Bibles, you have a 1 Samuel and a 2 Samuel. Um, but actually, uh, there was no division. It was originally meant to be one single volume, a book of Samuel, not a 1 Samuel and a 2 Samuel. The only reason why we have them divided in our Bibles is because the length of the scroll. They had to use two scrolls to tell the story. But it was always meant to be one long narrative, the book of Samuel. And now, uh, another note about this, when you read the entire thing, and I encourage you to try this, that you read um, 1 Samuel and uh, all the way through 2 Samuel and get through the whole thing, and you see this kind of narrative play out. And what's interesting is this narrative is, is actually a tragedy. It's a tragedy. This is a very sad story. We have three main characters that are told throughout this entire uh, narrative. Uh, you have Samuel, and Samuel is supposed to be the prophet of God. He was supposed to lead um, and, and, and be the voice of God to the people, and, and the people reject him. Then you have Saul, his rise to power, and his subsequent fall from power because of sin and disobedience. And then you have David, and we think even with David, okay, now we're going to get it right with David. And we have the rise of David, and, and, and it looks great, but then David begins to go on a downhill trajectory. And the end of 2 Samuel ends with David um, and God punishing David because of his sin. And that's how the book ends. It's this, in, this incredible tragedy that we're reading about people um, and, and, and their lives and the situations in their lives. And, and, we, and we see that it's a tragedy from the very beginning in 1 Samuel chapter 8, verse 7. Look at what it says here. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people and all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. Right from the get-go here, the, the people are clamoring. They want to be like every other nation. And so they say, we want a king. And Samuel says, no, 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 you don't get it. That's not how it's supposed to go. And they go, we don't care. And finally, God says, all right, just let them have it. They've not rejected you. They've rejected me. Can you imagine what this would have been like if they had accepted God as their king? And, and God's leading in their life? In fact, I could take that a step further. Can you imagine what it would look like for us if we let God be king? What would the world look like if God was truly king 
in our lives. But this is, this is where we're at in the story. This is a tragedy that they have rejected God as their king. And Justin has been leading us through as we've been going through this life of David. Justin uh, led us through. He started out as David as a shepherd boy. Um, led us through to uh, the point in David's life where uh, he rises up and, and, uh, and kills Goliath. And then last week, uh, part two of that Goliath story, uh, we end with this victorious moment where David um, 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 defends the name of the Lord and defeats Goliath. And it's this amazing story. And if you were going to write the rest of the story, if, you, if, you, if that was where you picked up and you were there to pen it and write it, how would you end this story? Where would you go from here in the life of David? I would suspect maybe some of you might think, all right, here comes David. He was anointed by Samuel in secret, and now here comes his right. He defeats Goliath. Now's the point where he just takes off, and, and Saul, goes, Saul sees what happens. He goes, oh, man, you need to be king. You're, you're the anointed one. You know, I'm going to retire. I'm going to step back. And then David takes power, and he unites the, the, the nation and all the tribes and, and builds his dynasty, and, and it just goes on from there. And we just see this trajectory of the anointed one, David. But that's not actually what happens. We would think that that's where the story would lead us because he's a man after God's own heart. But that's not where the story goes from here. In fact, over the next six chapters, it's a time of confusion for David, frustration and loneliness. But it's also a time of growth. We move from a place in the narrative from victory and celebration to deep trial and frustration. Deep trial and frustration for David. God's promises. Imagine this man who, he, he was anointed. He, he's supposed to be king, right? And he knows this. Samuel came and anointed. Like he knows he's supposed to be king and yet he's not. And he goes through this, this span of his life where he's, he, he knows God's promises, but the fulfillment of those promises seem to be far away. And I suspect we've all felt that tension in our own lives. The tension of believing what God says to be true, but the reality of those promises seem out of our grasp. We know God's word says this, or we believe that God is leading us in this way, but the reality of those promises are far away from us. And we're asking questions, if God, why? And these are questions that we wrestle with. If God is loving and kind, if God has these promises and is true, then why do we have these situations? Why does God seem to be uh, far away from me? If God, why? And this is the phase in, this, in the narrative that we see David moving into. If God has anointed me to be king, then why am I not king? David goes into a time of desert, both literally and figuratively. David was on the run in the desert, fleeing for his life. And during that time of dryness in his life, he was wrestling with frustration, loneliness, doubt, wondering where God's at in his life. Deserts are things that we go through too, much like David. 
Deserts, figuratively, can be these things in our lives, these spans of, of days, years, months of our lives where we wonder, where is God at? These are desert moments for us where we know the truth of God's word, but somehow the reality of it isn't lining up. And, we're, and we go through deserts, and these can be trials. These can be times of sorrow and, 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 and grief in our lives, these desert moments. And this is where we find David. And I hate to break it to us this morning, but the truth is that most of your life may be spent in deserts. The truth is most of our lives may be spent in desert. When we look at the life of David, from the time that he was anointed as the, uh, as the in secret to be the king of Israel, um, to the time that he actually became king, 12 years go by. From the time he's anointed to the time he actually becomes king, 12 years. From the time that he kills Goliath and goes on the run to the time he becomes king is 10 years. 10 years of his life where he is not king, but he was supposed to be. 10 years of life on the run. I want to do a survey, chapter 19, just to kind of fly over chapter 19 through 24. We're going to land in 24 today, but I'm going to give you a brief kind of overview of what's happening in the story so you can understand what's going on in this time of David's life. So in chapter 19, we come out of, he just, he just uh, uh, took out Goliath and, uh, and celebrating, and uh, then David joins Saul's army. He joins Saul's army to fight for Saul, and uh, he marries Saul's daughter, so he becomes a son-in-law to Saul, and he befriends his, his best friend named Jonathan. This all happens early on from 19 uh, in chapter 20. And, um, and during this time that he's fighting for Saul's army, like David's so good at what he does, he's like just taking out Philistine army after Philistine army, uh, moving from place to place, just really good at warfare and uh, and word and reputation begin to, to happen and and people start saying about David they start singing this song they say uh, Saul has killed his thousands David his ten thousands All right so they're singing this song about the victories that David has and as you can imagine Saul's not too keen on this right and so jealousy begins to to creep into Saul's heart and and he's getting frustrated and so he starts to try to get David killed he starts to put him in places and fight battles, hoping that the Philistine armies will kill him, but they don't. David keeps coming out on top, right? He, he tries to convince David's wife, his own daughter, to get, get rid of David. Tries to convince Jonathan, Saul's son, David's best friend to do it. Jonathan won't do it. And it comes to a head in chapter uh, 21, this really interesting story where um, David comes to Jonathan, his best friend, Saul's son, and says, hey man, your dad's trying to kill me. And um, Jonathan's like, no, nah, I'm not, I don't, I don't think that's the case. I, that's in the Bible. I'm quoting reverse, reverse, right? now. then my paraphrase, so stay with me. Um, and, and so Jonathan's like, no, nah, I don't think that's the case. David says, no, hold on. We'll, we'll put this to the test. There's this big celebration and festival that's taking place. I'm not gonna show up um, because your dad's trying to kill me. And when I don't show up, like he's gonna lose his mind. And that's gonna be your sign that I'm right. Jonathan's like, all right, we'll see. 
So Jonathan goes to the festival, the celebration, and uh, Saul, of course, goes, where's, where's David at? And uh, uh, Jonathan's like, well, his dad wants him to go, go home for, for the festival, and uh, so he couldn't be here. And it's like, all right. And so the next day, they, day two of the festival and the feast, they come together. And again, Saul says, hey, where's, where's David at? And, and Jonathan goes, yeah, hey, you know, he, he had to go home. They wanted him to go home for it. And then in the text you read, uh, like Saul loses his mind and, and begins to cuss out Jonathan. Like, you can go read it. I encourage you to do so. Um, uh, you know, the Bible, guys, is not like PG, just so you know, right? You read the Old Testament. We're not reading PG literature. This is like R-rated stuff. And, and so uh, Saul loses his mind and gets so mad at Jonathan because he thinks Jonathan's protecting David, which he kind of is. He grabs a spear and he hucks it at Jonathan, nearly like hitting him and killing him. It's a chair and Jonathan just like takes off, meets up with David in the field. He's like, all right, man, you're right. <laughs> I believe you now. My dad's trying to kill you. And so the story goes on that they, they, they flee, right? They take off. David takes off in the wilderness and he, he's like, all right, I'm out of here. Um, the story goes on in, in the next chapters that David uh, is hungry. He's on the run and he's hungry and he goes to this priest's home. Uh, and uh, the priest has laid out um, the, the bread of presence is what it's called. These are these 12 loaves of bread that were laid out every single day. New bread was laid out every single day and it represents the 12 tribes of Israel. And it was to help remind them of um, the time in the desert, uh, another desert moment where God provided for them through manna. And so it's called the the bread of presence and you're not supposed to eat it you're not supposed to eat it and David goes in he says hey I'm hungry to the priest and, and the priest gives them this bread right uh, it's interesting in Mark chapter 2 the gospel of Mark Jesus also talks about this story so you can go and look that up on your free time um, but he eats the bread and then he and he goes on his way and Saul is so mad that the priests helped David that he goes to where the priests are at and he kills all the priests the temple all the priests and their children and their wives and all their cattle and all their livestock like he's losing his mind right kills them all david goes on the run again and he hears about the philistine army that that are uh, attacking a city and so he goes to help this city and he and he pushes back the philistine army defeats them and while he's in the city fighting the philistine army saul hears that he's at this city so saul gets his army and, he, and they go after david and david gets wind that that he's coming and so he takes off because he's afraid david's afraid that if i stay there in the city and saul shows up the people of the city are going to um, turn me in they're going to turn me in so he takes off and, and goes back into the wilderness crazy stories of Saul being bent on killing David killing David this is the thing these six chapters we read them quick we go over them pretty quick but this is 10 years 10 years Chapter 24 goes by, goes into, and we go into chapter 24, and this is where we're going to land this morning, but chapter 24, uh, David's in a cave. He's deep in, inside a cave with his men, and lo and behold, Saul and his army, they're looking for him in, in, in the valley, and they're trying to find where he's at, and David's hiding in a cave with his men, and Saul goes into the cave and where David and his men are hiding. Now, we're going to pause there, we're going to come back to that story in a second. But I want to pull out something I think is very significant about this 10-year time span. 
In the book of Psalms um, that we have, there are many chapters um, in the book of Psalms that are attributed to David, that David actually wrote. Um, uh, David is attributed to around 75 different Psalms that you have in the book of Psalms, 75. 36% of those Psalms, nearly half of the Psalms that David wrote are attributed to this 10-year span of his life while he's on the run. Almost half of the Psalms that David writes comes during his time in the desert. Psalms like eight, uh, 18, 34, 52. These are just a few that I have up on the screen. You see, Psalms are profound expressions of grief, anger, lament, but also of hope, belief, um, um, perseverance, trust. Psalms are these beautiful mixture handbag of emotions. And when you read these Psalms of David, you often get this mixed bag where in one moment David's going, God, where are you at? What are you doing? What's happening? Why are my enemies coming after me? I'm gonna be destroyed. And then like in the next paragraph, he's going, but I trust you and I believe in you and you're, and you're, uh, you're faithful and your promises are true. And so he has these emotions. And, and guess what? That shouldn't surprise us because we have those same emotions, don't we? Don't we? Don't we go through times and seasons of our life where we question and we doubt and we wonder where is God at? And there are times in our lives where uh, we can sing his praises and believe his promises are true. These are the psalms. These are the songs and the hymns that we sing to God. You see, when we cry out to God, it doesn't always have to be this perfect, like, worded thing that we always say the right things. You know what? Some of the best psalms that we have are ones that are questioning God. Where are you at? What are you doing? Why aren't you helping me? Do you not hear my cries for help, God? These, these are transparent, vulnerable things that we do. And we see this all through the Psalms. I want to turn your attention to Psalm 57. And we're going to read this Psalm 57 is attributed to the time that we left off here in 1 Samuel 24 with David in the cave. And um, one thing to know, like look at the very top and, and all your Bibles should have this um, but it says, for the choir director. So this is a little note for the psalm. So these psalms, the, the people of Israel would take these and actually sing them in the tabernacle. These were things that were sung, like, like a hymn book in our, in our more modern day. I guess hymn books aren't modern anymore, but like, um, you know what I mean? Like they had these out. And so what's interesting is that there's these little cliff notes of like what to do with this. It says, for the director, um, a psalm of David regarding the time he fled from Saul and went into the cave. To be sung to the tune, do not destroy. Does anybody know the tune, do not destroy? I, I like... That's fascinating to me. Like, we have this, like, okay, if you're going to sing this song, this psalm of David while I was in a cave, make sure you do it to the tune of Do Not Destroy. Like, whatever that is, right? Um, but this is what they would sing. And it's, and it's very different than our, like, modern songs, right? Where you got, like, verse, chorus, verse, chorus, verse, chorus, right? Like, can you imagine singing this, like, as a song? I, I don't even know how that would go. But listen to what he says. This is David writing. Maybe before... While he's in the cave before Saul gets there, maybe, maybe after Saul leaves the cave, 
when the events transpired. Maybe he wrote it then. But this is what he says. Have mercy on me, O God, have mercy. I look to you for protection. I will hide beneath the shadow of your wings until the danger passes by. I cry out to God most high, to God who will fulfill his purpose for me. He will send help from heaven to rescue me. Disgracing those who hound me, my God will send forth his unfailing love and faithfulness. And I encourage you on your own to read on, but for the sake of time, do you hear, do you hear the cry in the heart, the belief of what David believes about God that he's going to be rescued? Now, remember, this is 10 years of Saul chasing David to kill him. 10 years on the run. 10 years of not knowing if he was going to be king. 10 years of of watching his back. 10 years of not knowing if the next city he goes into he's going to be betrayed and turned in. 10 years. And yet, David has the ability to say, my God will rescue me. 10 years. When we find ourselves in places of desert, worship becomes the sustenance for survival. I'm going to let that one sink in. When we find ourselves in the desert, worship becomes the sustenance for survival. I believe for David, his worship is what enabled him to get through the desert moments in his life. It was a posture and a heart of worship that allowed him to get through this desert moment. And here's the thing. This isn't new. This isn't a new thing. This has been the case for followers of God and followers of Jesus from the beginning. From the beginning, worship has played an instrumental part of of our faith and and our pursuit of God. You see, for the first 300 years of Christian history, we saw the most brutal persecution of Christians ever recorded. We, we have writings of Christians that were hung on crosses and lit on fire to light the roads for citizens traveling. We have stories of Christians being fed brutally to dogs and wild animals in the Colosseum. These are non-Christian sources telling us what happened to Christians. Brutal persecution. And yet, somehow the church expanded and grew. In the middle of the worst, most severe kinds of persecution, the church expanded and grew. Why? Why? Well, of course, we would say, well, because it's the church, right? It was inevitable. No, no. I believe there were practices that took place in the early Christians, the first Christians that enabled them to get through that. How many of you have heard the name Pliny the Younger? Show of hands. Pliny the, uh, Pliny the Younger. Yes. Love it. Pliny the Younger. He is a Roman, was a Roman, is not a Roman governor. He was a Roman governor in, in the province of Bithia, which is modern Turkey. Modern Turkey. He was a Roman governor. And uh, um, he came across some Christians. This is in the year uh, roughly 110 uh, to 118. Um, he comes across Christians in his area for the first time. And he doesn't know what to do. So he, he, he figures out he's, he's going to investigate who these Christians are, what they believe, and what they're about. 
And so uh, we know that um, uh, uh, Pliny uh, gathered up some Christians. He tells us specifically about two, two women that he gathered. He called them deaconesses. And um, well, he said they called, the Christian church called them deaconesses. He gathered them together and he tortured them. He says, I tortured them for information to find out what they do, what they believe. And after he gathered all this information, he writes to the emperor Trajan in 111. He writes to the emperor Trajan to say, here's what I found out. And what do you want me to do about this? What do you want me to do? So in his letter to emperor Trajan, he says this about the Christians and their practices. And this is just a little bit of what he says. The sum and substance of their fault or error, which to his attitudes towards them already, what he thinks about them, had been that they were accustomed to meet on a fixed day before dawn and sing responsively a hymn to Christ as God. Now, this, for any history or maybe anybody that's into like Christian history or apologetics, you go right now because this is amazing that we have this a non-christian this dude was not a christian was not favorable to christianity as far as we know never even converted to christianity okay writing about christians right at the turn of the first century right so at this point in his writing we very may well have started seeing the formation of the new testament at the very least, maybe the book of Revelation was starting to come into formation. Like, this is early, early. The eyewitnesses had probably, the last eyewitness had probably had just died, and we are on the second generation of Christians. The earliest, the earliest source of Christian life from a non-Christian writer, you have it on your screen. Pliny the Younger. And he tells us that what they did, and he goes on to say more, and I encourage you to look it up. It's all public information. You can go and read his writings. Um, but he says that on, on a fixed day of the week, right, like a Sunday, they got together in the morning, right, like kind of we do. And the first primary thing he said that they do is that they worship. They sing a hymn to Christ as to God. Now, this is something you can, little Bible nerd stuff you can take and put in your back pocket, okay? And pull it out when, it, when someone asks later, right? Bible nerd stuff. Anyone who might tell you that the belief that Jesus was, a, was, was the son of God was something late in history, like around the time of Constantine or in the third century, oh, this was a late belief. You go, oh, well, have you ever read Pliny the Younger? Because he wrote in like 111 AD that the, he was accusing him for worshiping Jesus as God. So the belief that Jesus was the son of God was something that happened very, very early. Very early, very early. You can take that out next time you're having that conversation over coffee with someone. Maybe you're not having the conversations I like to have, but those are the, the conversations I like to have. Um, so the point being here is that if in the world of the first century in the 300 years that, that Christian persecution was at, uh, at such a heightened severity that um, they continued to meet together for worship shows the value that they had of worship in their lives in the midst of severe persecution. They never ceased meeting together in corporate worship despite the consequences of doing. Is it any wonder that the church explosively grew? They centered themselves 
and a heart of worship. In times of immense persecution, the first Christians never ceased coming together in corporate worship. And I believe this is what helped David too in his time of desert and persecution. Now back to first uh, Samuel chapter 24. First Samuel chapter 24. There's a big turning point in David's life. Uh, in that, um, we have David in the cave. That's where we left him. He's in the cave with his men. Saul, in the story, comes into the cave to um, relieve himself, is, is what the Bible tells us. So using the restroom, needed to use the restroom, wanted a private place to do it. It's, we all agree, you know, of course. Um, uh, little does he know that David is in the back, further back in the cave, and they see Saul come into the cave. And all of a sudden, the, the, the men, David's men and David, they're looking at this so like, this is our chance. This is our chance. Saul doesn't even know we're here. We could kill him now and be done with this. Right? And how many of us would question that? Well, maybe we would question, right? We don't, but 10 years of David's life have been spent with Saul ruthlessly pursuing to kill him. The whole time David going, I thought I was supposed to be king. I thought Dave, God wanted me to be king. And yet I'm on the run and I'm in hiding. And now I have an opportunity to be done with this whole thing and become king. Now here's the challenge to us. When we're in times of desert, we often want to take matters into our own hands, don't we? When we're in time of desert, we want to fix the problem ourselves. And that's where we make the mistake. That's where we make the mistake. David had an opportunity to kill Saul, and he actually goes in. And he creeps up to Saul, the story tells us, and he grabs the end of his garment, and he cuts off a piece of the garment. Now, probably, like, to make, you know, what the motivation of cutting the garment versus just going in for the kill right he cuts the garment but what happens in the story this is profound and this is a transition moment for David and where I believe worship allowed him to get to this moment in his life he could have killed Saul he could have taken matters into his own hand and then verse 5 after he cuts the garment off it says this but then David's conscience began bothering him because he had cut Saul's robe he said to his men, the Lord forbid that I should do this to my Lord, the king. I shouldn't attack the Lord's anointed one. Well, wait a minute. David was the anointed one, right? Samuel anointed David to be king. But for David, he had a moment of clarity for the Lord himself had chosen him. So David restrained his men and did not let them kill Saul. And the ESV, it says that David's heart struck him. It struck him. This moment of clarity. He was about to take mad 10 years of your life on the run, on being hunted down. And you have a moment to finally go, I'm done. I'm sick of this. And he goes in and his heart struck him. And he goes, you know what? It's almost like when Jesus was in the garden and he says, Lord, take this cup path let this cup pass from me and then he has a moment of clarity and then Jesus goes no not my will but yours be done right David goes nope 
How is David able to go through what he went through for such a long period of time, fully knowing what the promises of God were in his life, but failing to see that in reality? How is he able to go through that and then in a moment like this have such clarity as to what is God's battle versus his? I believe. Now, you don't get this in the text. It doesn't tell us this in Sam. We don't, we don't know why. But if you look at your history and you understand what was going on in that tenure, I, th- I think it's because David submitted himself in worship during this desert time and that enabled him to have the clarity he needed as he came out of the desert. It's this moment of clarity that can only come to those who have immersed themselves in the presence of the Lord. It's because of David's willingness, I believe, to engage God in deep psalm while in the desert that he's able to come out the other side with clarity and alignment with God. And you might say, Joe, but I'm in a desert and it's really hard to, to, to sin, to praise God right now. It's really hard. Yeah, it is. You don't have to pretend like you're not frustrated. You don't have to pretend like you aren't full of grief and sorrow. It's okay. David did the same thing. My God, my God, where are you? What's happening? It's okay. Let your emotions come out. What will happen is you continue to just immerse yourself in, in praise. All of a sudden, your heart will begin to grow. And you'll get to a point that you'll be able to come out of that desert with clarity and alignment with God. Here's my take home, how I want to land this conversation. To be sustained through the desert, we must live in the presence of God. And the best way to start is through worship. To be sustained in your desert, whatever your desert looks like, and maybe you've been in your desert for a number of years. Maybe it's been more than 10 years. Maybe it's been longer. Maybe it's been just a few months. And you're struggling with how, where, your you're if God, then why is where you're at. I encourage you and implore you to worship. To, to, um, to allow your heart to be filled with the presence of God. and Maybe that looks like worshiping. You turn off the radio on your way to work. You know? Stop the distraction of whatever you listen to. You can put on some worship music if you want, but maybe, maybe just sit in silence and talk, start talking to God. But at the very least, we should not stop this right here. This corporate worship, like you realize 2,000 years, this is what they were doing. The earliest church was coming together in worship in times of desert. There's something powerful when we come together and worship like this. Now, I'm not saying this is the only place you can worship, but I am encouraging to, to invest into this, to sing and to praise God and watch it open your heart to what God may be doing in your life. Maybe you're not in a desert right now. You're saying, I don't know, my life's pretty good. Can I say, give it a day? <laughs> right? Ask me again tomorrow type thing. 
because that's how quickly things can change. You might be good, and that's cool, but start getting ready because a desert's probably coming. And if you're going to be ready to get through it, you need to be in worship in the presence of God. Before we take communion this morning, um, I just want to um, take a moment and, um, and recognize that there may, may be some of you that are in a desert and, um, and this is, it's like a very serious thing. Like, you know, it, I talk about this, I kind of make light of some of the scenarios that David went through, um, but it wasn't light, right? Like life is hard. And if you are in a desert moment, whether you're watching online or you're here in this auditorium and you're just in a place of dryness, I can't promise you that tomorrow it's gonna be okay or that it's gonna get better. I can't promise you that give, give it a week and you'll, you'll be okay. You might be in a desert for a number of years. You might be. What's going to get you through it is worship. It's worship. And so before we take communion, if you are in a desert place, I want to take a moment of just quietness where we can realign our hearts. And maybe the prayer for you during this time is, God, I don't know where you're at. I don't know what you're doing with my life. I don't know what the future holds. I don't know what's going to happen to my kids. I don't know what's going to happen to my marriage. I don't know what's going to happen to my friends and my relationship. I don't know what's going to happen with my job. I don't know what's going to happen, God. But no matter what, Every day I will worship you. If you are in a desert, let that be your prayer. Let's take a moment and reflect on that.